0: to the Intuitive Insights podcast series. I'm Nina Lockwood, founder and director of Intuitive Interim and Executive Search. Throughout this series, I will be sharing engaging conversations with talented leaders from across the UK transport sector. Steve, good morning and welcome to the Intuitive Insights podcast.
1: Uh, good morning, Nina. Thank you for having
0: me. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm absolutely delighted. and really grateful to you for taking the time out of what I know is an exceptionally busy schedule for you. So to have you join us um, is an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Um, and for the audience, then I'll introduce you properly. Steve White, Chief Operating Officer of GTR. You're absolutely welcome onto Intuitive Insights. Um, First of all, Steve, I mean, you and I have have had a great chat. We bonded over a poached egg, didn't we? Um, Quite a few, it feels like years ago now, quite honestly. It was when we were allowed to sit across the table from each other at St Pancras Station. Um, So I do, I've got the privilege of knowing um, about you and and your career to, to a certain extent. But I'm really keen for you to share with our audience. Uh, your story. I'd like to know how you got into rail, why rail in the first place um, and a trot through your career to date please to take us to present day in your role as COO at GTR.
1: Okay well my story began in Derby that's where I'm born and bred. If you come from Derby you can only do one of two things you can either work for Rolls-Royce or British Rail. It's very much a, a, a city dominated by those two industries. And in my family, father, uncle, sister, brother-in-law, all Rolls-Royce. So I joined the the rail industry. Um, After I did my A-levels, I wanted to stay in Derby for another year because sadly uh, we'd lost my mother um, at a very young age and I was just 17 at the time. So I didn't want to go off to university. I wanted to stay in Derby for another year, which meant I had to uh, find some training for that year, and I looked at uh, Rolls Royce and British Rail, and I joined the British Rail management scheme uh, many, many years ago, and that got me into uh, rail. And I, I think I've warned you before: if you join this industry and you like it, it gets in your DNA, and you don't want to leave. And you know that's how I've always felt. I did engineering at university. Uh, when I graduated, I was. Uh, I, when I went to university initially, I wanted to, be, to do yacht design, and British Rail uh, banned me from studying yacht design. I, I gave them all sorts of reasons why the, you know, that knowledge would be helpful uh, you know, in a modern forward-thinking railway, but they, do, they weren't buying it. So I, I studied engineering, and when I graduated, I had this idea that I would be a, um, a train designer for a living. But I didn't want to design trains that people couldn't maintain. I wanted to design practical Um, trains. So I started off life uh, upon graduation in railway maintenance and that's where my career began. Um, I worked in places like Stratford and Ilford. I was um, for 18 months a personal assistant to a British Railways board member that looked after all the engineering and safety across um, the UK and that gave me an insight into how the railway was organised from the very top and also pre-privatisation, the way we wanted to run uh, our, our industry, uh, in what was known as organising for quality. So, in the early 1990s, we set up businesses like Network Southeast and InterCity, and those businesses started to operate the railway in a truly integrated fashion uh, immediately before uh, privatisation. Uh, when privatisation came along, the um, First business I went to was uh, Silverlink Trains. Uh, we introduced purple trains. They reminded us of the Cabridge buttons, if you remember those many years <laughs> ago. Pur- pu- purple trains. Who'd have thought of it? But we loved yeah. them, and we ran some of what is now um, ARL and some of what is now the London Northwestern route. Uh, and that was my first experience out of uh, railway maintenance and into operations. I was the uh, Deputy Managing Director of Silverlink Trains, and I was loving it. We were were running commuter trains out of uh, Euston. Upon privatisation, that business became part of the National Express Group, and National Express asked me to go to Eurostar. Now, if you like trains like I do, then the the, uh, attractiveness of a train is directly proportionate to how pointy the nose is, so, trains with pointy front ends are really attractive, and how fast the train goes. And the Eurostar train does 186 miles an hour. So, I couldn't resist the opportunity to go to Eurostar. I was there five years. It's a fabulous business, some wonderful people. And we really felt we were competing with the airlines. You know, we were giving people daily services to Lille, Paris, Brussels. We were stretching our legs down to the south of France in the summer and to the ski resorts in the winter. And I loved being a part of that. Uh, And in 2004, we set the UK uh, speed record. We went through Kent at 208 miles an hour on a Eurostar testing out high speed one um, in its first phase before it came all the way to St. Pancras. So I love Eurostar. I was there for five years. Uh, but when I left, I, I wanted to do something very different. I joined Siemens, and in an industry as mature as ours, the chance to join a, what was at that stage quite a young business, quite new to rail, you know, was irresistible. And um, we were going through a big period of organic growth, so Siemens were winning trade orders. Uh, and getting maintenance contracts to go with them, and that gave us the opportunity to build new depots and recruit a new team of people. So, in my time at Siemens, we went from having hundred people to a thousand people, and all of them were um, hired. And we had two brilliant ladies, Rachel and Shona, and nobody joined our business unless they passed the Rachel and Shona test. You know, we, we, they were coming in because they had the right attitude and the right values, not just you know, a technical skill set. Mm. So I loved my time at um, Siemens. I was there for 10 years and one day. It's the longest place I've ever been in anywhere. Mm. But it was, a, it was a great company to work for, uh, one of, of really strong values. And then I got the opportunity to join uh, Transport for London, and particularly London Underground. I was invited uh, by Phil Huffton to come and run the subsurface railway. So if you know your London Underground Lines, that's the District Line, the Circle Line, the Hammersmith and City and the Metropolitan, uh, you know, includes the oldest underground in the world. Although it's an underground, half of it's above rail. It's got a nice yeah. walkthrough the Bombardier yes, stock trains. You know, it's a proper railway. And my wife said to me, why do you want to, to get to the underground? I said, well, for the first time ever, it's a whole railway. My team look after track, they look after signals, they look after trains, they look after stations, they look after drivers, they look after control. For the first time ever, it's an entire vertically integrated proposition. And I went to work on the very first day, and we'd had a massive signaling failure at Edgeware Road. And my wife said to me, what's what's it like? And I said, well, this vertical integration is a bit overrated. You know, (laughs) every single problem is now the problem for me and my team. Yeah. Um, but truly I met some wonderful people I think there's real talent in uh, TFL and um, you know some, again some tremendous values and I spent I spent three and a half years running the subsurface railway for them and then a year leading their um, implementation for a new digital signaling system uh, to, to go across and transform that railway because the problem we had uh, Nina we had brand new Uh, trains but we had ancient signaling, literally we were running a railway with technology that spanned 100 years. So the opportunity to bring in the new signaling was something I very much wanted to be part of. Um, And that brings me up to about two years ago when I joined GTR, it's my local railway company. Although my background shows you my country estate at Arundel, I actually live in in Bedford. Thameslink was my local railway. GTR is my local uh, brand, and I joined uh, GTR a couple of years ago um, to be part of uh, Patrick Vera and the new team there. And that brings you right back up to speed.
0: Right back up to speed. I love this story, um, and and as I say, you know, we've obviously we've chatted before, uh, but what you haven't shared with me was this kind of the the very technical detail about what makes a train attractive. And now you've said pointy and fast. Then I've realised that it. I am actually now, I am a bona fide rail enthusiast <laughs> see, because I like pointy and fast too. Everybody so, does. <laughs> there you go. There you go. And purple ones as well. Fantastic. When listening to you, and I'm always fascinated actually when I hear people's career stories because it looks like a perfect plan. What you've done in your career, if you'd set out, you know, finished your A-levels, right, okay, here's my career and that's where I want to get to, ultimately, then it has been a perfect plan all the way through. Was it a plan or have you just been really good at spotting opportunities and kind of identifying where your gaps were in terms of your development?
1: No, it was absolutely a plan. It was meticulously planned from start to finish, apart from... My very first job at uh, Silverlink Trains, which was an assignment by my uh, board uh, member of BR at the time, apart from going from Silverlink to Eurostar, which was their suggestion, not mine, Uh, apart from staying uh, for a decade at Siemens because I just was having so much fun and never thought about leaving, and apart from going to uh, TFL because they rang me and said, come for an interview. So apart from that, it was definitely my decision to apply for GTR and make a conscious decision to go there.
0: So Steve, thank you for for that for taking me through your, um, your career highlights. Um, I know that there's going to be many more highlights to come and we've got lots of opportunities ahead of us in terms of the rail industry. So with the, with the experience that you've got and your general approach and attitude, I, I'm absolutely confident that you will be looking for the opportunities as well. Um, I am going to to perform my um, task as a fairy godmother here in this next bit and give you three wishes. And those three wishes um, are for what you would like, which you believe would really help the industry get to the next stage of its development and onto success in the future. So what would your three wishes be?
1: Well, firstly, I'd say I'd, I'd love you to be part of the Williams Review, because if you can go out around granting wishes, that's kind of just what we're looking for. So the, the three things I really hope for this industry are that we build back better, we build back greener, and we build back faster. And I think that is the opportunity that we have the, that we can seize. What do I mean by that? Build back better is better in all regards from our customer's perspective. Better performance for them. You know, our railways look like Swiss or Japanese style railways in the summer. They were amazingly punctual. So we need to give customers better performance. We need to give them better customer service. You know, they've spent months uh, traveling in their car or not traveling at all. They need great customer service to really come back to rail. We need better ticketing. Do you know how many fares we've got in our ticketing database? You can buy a ticket from any station to any other. You can buy it at different times of the day, different days of the week, with discounts that you may be eligible for. We have 55 million different fares in our fares database. Uh, And uh, and we're still issuing paper tickets for many journeys. So we really do need a better uh, ticketing proposition. And of course, we need to give customers better value for money. You know, during this pandemic, many customers have, have saved large quantities of money by not commuting, not having a season ticket. We need to really win back our customers uh, and we need to win new ones. So, I, I, my first wish is to build back better. My second wish is to build back greener. You know, there's a whole generation now that are really engaged in the sustainability agenda. You know, and we know that electric railways in particular are a great and green way to travel and that uh, net carbon zero by 2050, if that's going to become real, you know, rail has to play its part. So I'd like to see a removal of all diesel trains on the GTR network within five years. And we're working with the Department of Transport and with network rail to find out how that can be enabled. So we want to build back greener and show that public transport is the viable alternative to the private uh, car. And finally, I'd like to build back faster. We've learned to do things with great agility during this pandemic. And our Secretary of State, uh, Grant Shamps, is an impatient human being. You know, he has set up an acceleration unit. You know, the clue is in the name. Network Rail are looking at their biggest um, investment projects under something known as Project Speed. So the railway needs to work with pace in the future. So my final wish is that we build back faster.
0: I shall do my very best. My magic wand is fully charged. (laughs) Let's see how we do. I think that all of those areas, I couldn't agree with you more, Steve. I think there's, there's, there's such a huge amount, a huge amount of opportunity facing us and even as you're talking to me and you're talking about you know the uh, providing excellent customer service and making people want to travel on the train again to kind of fall back in love with the railway because ultimately and we've seen this haven't we in transport focus has, has done some research recently once people have traveled on the train again once they've made that first journey then they're very happy to come back because they can see what we're doing how clean the trains are and beyond clean you know we'll go they've always been clean but this is kind of like super duper hospital theater style clean isn't it
1: correct if we're honest our trains have never been cleaner if we're honest that you know you get a seat on every train now so it's never been easier to sit down and enjoy the journey and our trains have never been more punctual you know we have to hold on to that Mm -hmm and sprinkle some fairy dust on it. There's more we need to do, yeah. uh, but that's gotta be our new minimum standard.
0: Absolutely. And and I really love the fact you've picked up on this word agile as well. This is something for me, which has been um, one of the, the key things for how the railway has responded to the pandemic, because you know lots of people, probably gosh, hundreds of people have said to me, well, we're great in a crisis. That's what we do. That's what we do in the rail industry. And yes, absolutely, it's been an amazing response to, to a nice. massive crisis. But it's, it's not just about the crisis management for me. It's how quickly decisions have been able to be made. You know, just the obvious one, you know, getting people to work from home where they can. Who would have thought that that could have happened overnight when, you know, even as recently ago as January, um, you know, when I was taking a, a, a brief for a search assignment, I be, we were talking about flexible working as being a benefit for that role. And now it's a hygiene factor. We know that people want to have that opportunity to be able to do both. Um, but the rail industry responded so quickly to that, along with lots of other industries. But we can do it, we can be fleet of foot. And I think we've got so much evidence of that. Um, over the last few months and as you say we've got words like acceleration and project speed coming in as well it's kind of really exciting it's good stuff
1: you, you're right and we're, we're, we're trying to create that mindset that this is now a new normal if you'll uh, pardon that overused expression we are saying to people don't expect that 2020 was a year of rapid change rapid change rapid change rapid change and then we can calm down and take a deep breath and go back to the old ways of working. I said, that has gone. We are not going to run our company in the future like we have in the past. We have a saying in GTR that we want to change our company fundamentally and irreversibly. So, you know, we're not messing about fundamentally and irreversibly. And we don't want to go back to the inertia that we previously had in it as an industry. Mm
0: -hmm. So there's no going back, there is only going forward. (laughs) Correct. Um, What lessons will you take with you, Steve, on that journey? I think if if nothing else, then 2020 has been a year for learning, whether that's kind of for for you personally or in your professional life. What do you think have been the key learning points for you?
1: I, I think we've learned that when you align people with a purpose, So for us, it was key workers supporting key workers, or you align people with values. Some of the work that we did for the community, you know, from food banks to supporting the homeless to having, you know, mental health drop-in centres at Brighton and Eastbourne Station. When you align people around values and purpose, you know, what can be achieved is just staggering so that that was the you know the overriding professional insight. I think the railway family really got to show its humanity. It didn't just show that we were good at changing timetables rapidly, it said we knew our role and we were all going to work towards achieving that, particularly those frontline workers who were doing it twenty four seven you know with a you know with this virus in society. they deserve all of the credit to what's been achieved. Uh, since March so I think I think we've really learned that on a personal level I've done some things I didn't expect to do I've been on a diet since January it's a keto diet I couldn't tell you what it is I don't understand it at all I've not allowed any sugar so apparently carrots are really bad and I'm not allowed any carbohydrates but I, yeah. I keep eating what I'm given and uh, I keep losing weight, so that's something I've learned on a personal level.
0: Yeah. I also
1: started Couch to Five K. I had Sarah Milliken as my um, as my coach, and I was trying to run for the first time in about a decade. And she said saying to me, "It's okay, Pet. If you need to slow down a bit more." Honestly, I couldn't have gone any slower. It was like it wasn't even a fast walk. It was brutally painful, but you know, a few weeks on, you know, running 5k is now possible. So I think I personally and many others have learned that if you're not commuting every day, you have quality time at home, that looking after your mental health actually is something you need to spend bandwidth doing and find something that works, whatever that might be. For me now, it's, it's running. And people laugh when they hear that. They uh, just cannot imagine it's the same Steve White they've known for
0: 30 years. Fantastic. You see, so I've learned something today. Not only do you have a country estate, <laughs> but you have a personal chef who does all your cooking for you. Yeah, absolutely. And very good. Your personal trainer.
1: <laughs> we get a we get a menu option every night. It's really good. It's a uh, take it or leave it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> brilliant. Brilliant. I do see I didn't I had no idea you were quite as posh as you are, Steve. That's brilliant. So some, some great learning there. And I couldn't agree with you more about the, the mental health thing. I think the, you know, when we were back in lockdown one um, and the government were allowing us out for an hour a day to do some exercise. Yeah. Um, so we, we, we have two dogs and we, were, we, were, we would walk anyway. But this kind of, right, you know, you're allowed out for your hour. And we might have actually on occasion gone a little bit over the 60 minutes, you know. But that for me was was a whole new routine. It was something that I was doing at, you know, similar time every day. It was helping me to kind of just download some stuff in my mind. Very lucky to live in the middle of nowhere. So we've got countryside all around us. And it's, you know, the power of being in nature actually was was pretty good for me as well. Um, Keeping that going... Now that we are in the darker nights of the exactly. autumn and winter months has been a bit more of a challenge, I would say.
1: Yeah, we're asking ourselves now. We recognise the winter is going to be a tough gig for a lot of people. So we're trying to keep lunchtime free, 12 till 1, give people some space during the day for some, for, some fresh air. We try to improve our email etiquette. So, if I want to send an email at 10 o'clock at night because it suits me to do a bit of work, then I don't expect anyone to reply at that point. I know Sir Peter Henley puts that on his email signature. So, you know, we need to ensure that there isn't this uh, norm that out of hours working and weekend working is, is now for everyone. Um, and we're trying to give people uh, the opportunity to to put their hand up and say you know i need some more resource or i need some more space because the workload has been phenomenal a colleague at the department for transport uh, rang me one day and said uh, you do understand our new uh, approach to train operators now we're going to set you a series of impossible deadlines um, to achieve a series of impossible tasks and then mark your homework on that. So, you know, in a nutshell, that was their summary. You know, yeah. but they, they've given us brilliant support. The industry's worked to meet their needs on behalf of uh, our client, for our uh, customers. But the work has been relentless, and we've got to recognise for some people, you know, we need to give them a break, and we need to uh, find a way of making this sustainable uh, not just um, stressful.
0: Yeah, absolutely agree. I think at the beginning, we were all, were so many conversations that I was having, we were really benefiting from this all this extra quality time. So yeah. I can have an extra hour in bed or I can do more exercise or I'm spending more time with my family. For me personally, I was in my own bed every night rather than in a hotel in London, nah. you know, spending much more time at home and it was great. I would say about the six to eight week mark, then people, that those conversations started shifting to where we were we were slowly but surely those boundaries between working from home or living at work started yeah. to have an impact yeah. and it was kind of well I can just do this because and it might be 10 o'clock at night but oh I've just thought I'll just do it now and this kind of working hours were stretching and stretching but I think my my sense is that people have realized this and we're kind of now settling into mm. into what will become normal. But with a watchful eye on, we need to keep our heads
1: healthy. Correct. The most important thing is to give people control. So if someone wants to do a quiet couple of hours on a Sunday morning to make the working week easier, that's fine. But you must do it because it's what you want to do, not that it's culturally expected of you. So we're very keen to give our people um, the psychological safety of being able to work in a manner that best suits them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, Steve, the, the, kind of the third part of the podcast, we talk about leadership, and this is normally the bit where I say, tell me about what leadership means to you, um, you know what how, what you picked up from other people, either and what you would do or what you wouldn't do. Um, I feel like I want to acknowledge, before we even go into that, that since you started speaking to me, there's been lots and lots of hints and, and tips, if you like, in terms of your view of leadership. You've mentioned values so many times, you know, whether that was for you and the organisation that you've worked with, whether it was was Rachel and Shona at Siemens who, you know, were the gatekeepers in terms of who gets through the door in relation to attitude and values. So that's clearly a key part of your own leadership style. Um, What else is important?
1: It's, I think inclusivity is really important and collaboration is really important. You know, it is, it is a team sport. You know, I've been influenced by other managers in my uh, career. Some of whom have shown tremendous humility um, and tremendous collaboration. And, and those for me have been enduring learning points in my career. You know, when I, you know, when I was young, I was focused, ambitious and, and frankly in a hurry to you know do the best job i could i'm i'm excited by excellence and and great performance uh, but i've learned to be increasingly inclusive in um, in what i do and i think above all collaboration is now the the um, the the value that matters most in our industry Everybody needs to collaborate. Rail companies need to collaborate with bus companies. You know, um, network rail colleagues need to collaborate with train companies. Train companies need to collaborate with each other. We all need to work with our clients. Nothing is more important than collaboration. And, and, um, you know, there is a a British standard for this that's now become a a euro norm. BS 11,000 was the standard for collaborative working, we pioneered using that in, um, in Siemens. We took it out of the construction sector and brought it into rail uh, to help think, build things like the National Training Academy for rail in uh, Northampton. And I just love everything that collaborative working stands for. Can we align on a sense of purpose? Can we agree what we're gonna share with one another and what we don't need to share? Uh, can we ensure that we co-create Uh, the right proposition rather than and have a adult to adult conversation not a master a servant or parent child conversation Mm -hmm. so I would say that you know my single uh, overriding leadership proposition is that great collaboration is is the is the key ingredient for success uh, particularly at this moment in time for our industry
0: Fantastic, and we have seen some some really amazing evidence of that, haven't we? Um, we have. And certainly, what people are saying to me, it's yes, it's the train operating companies with the department, with the trade unions, with Network Rail, and all aligned to this common purpose that you referred to before. It's kind of yeah, it's not a them and us. It's not what colour shirt you got on. It's actually we're we're all on the same team and we're all working to the same purpose. Correct, um, and when. So, when-
1: yeah. And when you invite people to be part of a wider team, most people like that intrinsically. So you can be a member of the Network Rail Track team, you know, but also feel part of the wider team that's delivering the entire customer service proposition. It's okay to have teams within teams, but being asked to join somebody else's team and feel part of a wider uh, network, a wider community, most people intrinsically like that. And as long as we give them, you know, a common sense of purpose. So network rail talk a lot about putting passengers first. In GTR, we say we want our customers to love us. The words are different, but the intent is exactly the same. So we can have a common discussion around doing the right thing and just use the the needs of the customer as our guiding light to make sure we make the right decisions, you know, through those conversations.
0: Yeah, wonderful. So- I could talk to you for hours, you know I could, but i I need to keep it short and sweet in terms of the amount of of stuff I want to, to have a conversation with you about um coming to the the end of um of this particular conversation, Steve, one of the things that I love to ask my guests because it just kind of gives me a another bit of insight into them and and what matters to them most is um is to ask you, do you have a favorite quote? is there something that really resonates with you is there something you kind of you turn to if you want a bit of a g up um or just that that matters or you like
1: Uh, i've got i've got two actually i thought i'd go large on this and they come from people of uh, slightly different levels of famousness if i can use that expression um i I used to work with a, a wonderful gentleman called steve reese and um He was the um, engineering director at um, Eurostar and and Northwestern. And he said to me, and it's appealed as an engineer, that railways are in this permanent state of unstable equilibrium. You won't find that in any management handbook. What's unstable equilibrium? It's a system which, if you just give it the smallest push, You know, it runs away and collapses into chaos. You can imagine a ball at the top of a hill. If you give it a little nudge, it will then run all the way down the hill and you'll never see it again. And that is our railway. It can be working perfectly one day and you just do something to it. You might apply a speed restriction in a certain place. You might introduce a new type of trains. You might have some rookie drivers on the network for the first time. And suddenly what you've created is suddenly unstable again and you need to put your arms around it and pull it back together. So that for me is a a permanent reminder that running a safe on-time railway can never be taken for granted. You know, the number of people that said, you haven't got many customers at the moment, it must be easy. You know, there's still a thousand ways for a train service not to run on time, even with no customers at all. So that was my first example. Yeah. My second, second example is rather more obvious and rather more famous. Um, Winston Churchill said, you know, never let a good crisis go to waste. Yeah. You know, if ever there was a, you know, a saying for this moment in time, I think that's it. You know, we genuinely need to come out of this crisis, you know, with a much better proposition that, that you and I have discussed. The stakes are very high. We're currently only carrying 25 percent of our normal passenger loadings Uh, the dft are subsidizing us to the tune of four million pounds a day as a result of the lost revenue so the stakes are very high but so is the opportunity and as winston churchill said never let a good crisis go to waste
0: fantastic i don't think i can say any more than that steve i think that is a perfect place to finish Um, With my huge thanks to you. I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. I'm absolutely confident that the uh, Intuitive Insights audience will enjoy it too. Um, Huge thank you.
1: Pleasure talking to you this morning and uh, thank you for letting me be your guest.
0: A huge thanks to Caroline for sharing her thoughts and her own personal insights and learnings from the last few months. The next episode of Intuitive Insights will be with you in two weeks time when I'm joined by Steve White, Chief Operating Officer for GTR.